really practical, a really pertinent podcast. Risk the patient losing their airway in the back of an ambulance sitting in traffic. If a patient is critically ill, we can't send that patient with a couple small peripheral IVs. On long transports, the ambulance risks running out of oxygen. Did I seem to get things right there? Welcome back, everyone, to Critical Care Perspectives in Emergency Medicine. This is Mike Winters from the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. And we have got an exciting podcast for you. We are joined by a new voice to CCPEM here, Dr. Eric Klotz, who's going to go through an innovative program that he has set up in a relatively resource-limited setting here in the state of Maryland. And then we're going to go through a few pearls and pitfalls that he has picked up over the years in resuscitating and managing critically ill patients in this limited resource setting and talk about some important things in considering transferring these patients out of resource-limited settings to the main tertiary care centers. A really practical, a really pertinent podcast here on a scenario that I would say most of our listeners are actually encountering, especially as COVID lingers on and virtually all of us are confronted with an increasing percentage of boarding patients leading to an increasing percentage of waiting room census, waiting room lengths of stay, and really trying to get those most critically ill patients out of our, say, single coverage setting to a tertiary or quaternary center. So without further ado, Eric, thanks so much for joining us here on CCPEM. Well, thank you so much for having me. A quick introduction. My name is Eric Klotz. Thank you for having me on. I am a community emergency medicine physician. I'm the director of emergency critical care for the Maryland Emergency Medicine Network and the creator and director of the Emergency Medicine Stabilization Team, or MSTAT, which is a nurse and physician on-call team that responds to the emergency department's in our four hospital system. And we respond when there is a critically ill patient and no immediately available ICU. And we come to bedside, take over management and continue resuscitation and simultaneously work on finding a disposition for the patient. And the goal of this talk would be to give a list of some considerations when we try to manage a critically ill patient on the Eastern shore in a rural setting, because there are some differences between a tertiary care center and a rural system. So to start with the general considerations that I want to put out there is we work in a resource limited setting and depending on our emergency departments, which range from freestanding medical facilities to critical access hospitals to a little bit larger hospital. We can have anywhere from two nurses, a doctor, and an emergency department on a night shift to a fully staffed ER with all the specialists available. The considerations that I want to put out there is what do we want the tertiary care centers to know about us and what the tertiary care centers would like to see from us when managing and transporting a critically ill patient from the Eastern shore or from any rural center. 
And the first and biggest thing that I want to put out there is we have an amazing team in our emergency departments and we do our very best, but sometimes the patient's needs outstrip the resources we have in our departments. And so knowing that the tertiary care centers can better understand why a patient is coming, we would want the tertiary care center to know that every aspect of the resuscitation might not be completed, but that we've gotten things started. The other thing we want the tertiary care centers to know is that we have some long transport times, depending on which system we are in, which emergency department in, to get somebody over to an ICU in Baltimore might be one and a half to two hour transport times by ambulance. And traffic, accidents, and a decrease in the commercial ambulance company staffings oftentimes leads to much longer transport times, wait times than expected. So let me jump in there, Eric, and just have a few follow-up questions for you. You know, the program that you've put together is quite novel. It may be in place in other areas of the country or the world, but many of our listeners are familiar with the EDICU or ED Resus Bay concept that Peter, Rob, John, and myself have talked about and even reviewed some papers on the EDICU concept. But really what you've put together is there's a number of facilities that we have on the Eastern Shore of Maryland that are in critical access locations. And your team actually deploys to that site. So rather than perhaps bring the patient and have them just held and wait for long transfer times, really sick patients, you deploy to the site you manage and assist those patients, do their resuscitation, provide them with good critical care, and then really work on getting them to the destination. So I've heard in a lot of internal meetings at the Maryland system level of how well this has been received. And I think that's probably one of the first points we want to get out there that for any of the listeners who are thinking about this, you know, Eric has done a lot of the legwork and an amazing job in setting up this mobile critical care and resuscitation team. So we want to let them know if you want to hear about a lot of the nuts and bolts to putting that together, just shoot us an email. I'll get you in contact with Eric because he's put together an amazing program. And then I think what you're leading up towards, you know, for the remainder of our discussion is very familiar to, I think, almost the majority of our listeners practicing in these settings, whether it be an hour or two transport time or even several hours. And that could be by aeromedical transport. It's several hours. They understand and are familiar with the complexities of getting that patient to the larger quaternary or tertiary center. So maybe with that, you, I think, have picked up on some really important pearls along with maybe pitfalls in airway management, things to think about with breathing, circulation. Perhaps could you dive into that for us? Yeah, I'd love to. The approach I take is similar to other places and really anybody, but ABCs. When we talk about the airway, we are going from a controlled environment, an ambulance, to a more controlled environment, which is the destination. And there are situations where it may be beneficial to control the airway with intubation where we might otherwise not do so if we are keeping the patient in-house. And the two examples I use would be epiglottitis and COVID. You have patients that have tenuous airways that might otherwise be stable on BiPAP or high-flow nasal cannula, but have the potential of decompensating en route. And it is 
often I've found better to control the airway and intubate that patient prior to leaving the emergency department than to risk the patient losing their airway in the back of an ambulance sitting in traffic. It's very much a clinical gestalt and a decision that we make not lightly and oftentimes in conjunction with the receiving hospital. We have put together a plan that when the transport and the critical care team arrives, we have a bedside discussion and we review whether or not the patient is felt to be safe for transfer without that advanced airway. And if the transport crew and the doctor look at the patient and decide the safer route is to take the airway, then we'll go ahead and intubate under controlled settings. The other management considerations for the airway is once you intubate that patient, you're not just putting the tube in and sending them out the door. We have had issues with patients self-extubating or trying to self-extubate due to lack of appropriate sedation in the back of an ambulance. And so it's very, very important that we make sure that there's propofol hanging, that there's backup bottles of propofol in case they run out, that there are protocols for bolus sedatives or pain medications. So these adverse events don't happen. The next consideration would be breathing. And that ties in with the airway. High flow nasal cannula is all the rage with COVID. And one thing that's not well understood is high flow nasal cannula burns through a lot of oxygen. And on long transports, the ambulance risks running out of oxygen and the high flow nasal cannula all of a sudden is no longer an option. And so we will put patients on BiPAP and if they can tolerate that, then that is a reasonable option. However, if we go back to the airway that intubation is the safest option for that patient. If the BiPAP settings change within the last six hours of us sending the patient, they need a nurse transport, which is also a consideration when sending a critical care patient. So keeping that in mind is imperative. Not having a patient maxed out on therapy prior to departure is really key. And that it goes for both BiPAP and high flow nasal cannula. That does not give the patient any room to go up on, on therapies and then the EMS crew and the nurse may need to intubate the patient in the ambulance. And so going back to that airway, we've seen with COVID that patients have that gradual slide downhill with gradually increasing oxygen demands. And for long transports, again, that's a big problem. And we've seen that on a few occasions. So just going back to that overall gestalt of, if you think the patient has the possibility of decompensating, then just go ahead, intubate them, get them on the vent, get them stabilized with pain medications, with your sedatives before sending them. The next consideration would be the circulation, and that is the vascular access. And that is one of the things that we hear from tertiary centers is having adequate access for the flight crews, for the paramedic crews, the nurse crews. If a patient is critically ill, we can't send that patient with a couple small peripheral IVs. We have to ensure that that patient has multiple viable large bore peripherals or central access. If the patient is on 
multiple drips medications, then they will absolutely need that central line prior to sending. Arterial lines are coming back in favor for critically ill patients, especially from the community sites on multiple pressors, other conditions like hypertensive emergencies, anything with titratable drips, we like to put an arterial line in because it is challenging for our ambulance crews and our paramedic crews in the back of an ambulance trying to read a machine cuff and titrating drips off of that. And the ambulance crews and the nurses have made it clear that you can't very well auscultate a manual blood pressure due to the ambulance noise, the engine noise, and impossible for helicopters. So having that arterial line in the patient is only going to be beneficial to the transport crews and ultimately the receiving hospital. It's one less thing for them to have to do upon arrival. So those are the three main categories that I like to really stress for both the community sites sending a critical patient and for the tertiary care centers receiving them. I think that's outstanding. So just to kind of go back and emphasize a few things in terms of the airway, you're at the bedside, you're deciding, well, you know, I I think if we have an ICU bed upstairs, let's see how they do and, and maybe not undergo the risks associated with intubation and RSI. But really, when you need to get that patient out of your critical access hospital, your single coverage site, your freestanding facility, thinking about really having a lower threshold to intubate the patient, secure the airway, taking into consideration how long the transport time is, whether that be by ground or air. And then once deciding and performing the intubation, really thinking carefully about analgesics and sedation and ensuring that they have proper analgosedation sedation for the transport. In terms of breathing, it's a great pearl. We've got a lot of people on high-flow nasal cannulas these days, but the amount of oxygen it blows through and how you transition patients over to non-invasive ventilation for the transport time, I think that that's key. And then in terms of circulation, I'll be honest, you know, that's the first time I'm hearing our community colleagues kind of really emphasize arterial access in the sense of transfer and that taking into account the noise, the inability and unreliability of non-invasive measurements, understanding that there may be even places that our listeners work at that may not have the capability to place an arterial line or monitor invasive blood pressures, but when possible, and really in someone who is hemodynamically labile, leaning just like an intubation, lower threshold for intubation, lower threshold for invasive arterial access to get a much better idea of the patient's mean arterial blood pressure and, if needed, initiation of vasopressors prior to transport. Did I seem to get things right there? Yeah, absolutely. An additional consideration for the tertiary care centers is to know what consultants the community hospitals have access to. Oftentimes, if any, obviously a freestanding emergency department does not have a surgeon available, but at a smaller hospital, we may only have a surgeon and an anesthesiologist and they have to come from home. And it may be faster in certain cases to just transfer the patient rather than wait for specialists to come in, call in a whole OR team, et cetera. And we've had cases where the tertiary consultants are asking for 
certain procedures to be done prior to transfer and knowing that that will ultimately delay the care and that it's faster just to get the patient over to the definitive site. I think that's also an important consideration. So if you're a tertiary consultant to know your hospital, and if you don't know, please ask, what services do you have available? Is this a procedure that 100% needs to be done prior to transfer, or is it safer, faster just to get the patient to you? That is a great point. And really, once again, just to reemphasize for all of our listeners, you know, Eric, this program that you've had, that mobile resuscitation team, the deployment, have you picked up any additional pearls as you land in these various facilities and you're doing that bedside resuscitation? Yeah, the program itself is massively successful, I'd like to think. But being able to offload the primary team and let them get back to managing the whole department and letting us focus on the critical care resuscitation of just one patient has been a game changer over on the Eastern shore here. And I would say the pearls that I would have would be once we come to bedside, getting a good sign out and finding at bedside, taking stock of the situation, what access does that patient have? What do they need immediately? Oftentimes I'm coming to bedside and they need a central line right away because they are on peripheral vasopressors and we're increasing the doses of them. So we know right off the bat that patient's going to need a central line. And depending on how critically ill, I will just usually just put in a central line and an arterial line in one go and finding what hospitals would be the most appropriate for this patient. Sometimes they are appropriate for a community ICU. Other times they have special needs that outstrip the resources at a community center. I think the major benefits of this program are in its ability to provide that one-on-one care with the patient and giving us the opportunity of providing the care that we all know we can give, but without the additional burden of managing the rest of the department or in the nursing case, the rest of their group. And so that I think is the real crux of this team and getting out to the patient as quickly as possible and then getting them to that definitive level of care. Well, I want to congratulate you specifically on this program. It is innovative and it is receiving a ton of accolades and you're doing really a great job, not only for the system, but really truly patients and getting them the care that they need while awaiting transfer. So congrats on that. And once again, anyone who wants to contact Eric to learn more about this mobile resuscitative team or resuscitation team, and just the practical aspects of how to get to the patient, what to do. He is the expert in that area and I'll connect you with him. All right. Well, Eric, I think we're going to wrap this podcast up. It's been super informative on this process that you've set up and thanks so much especially for the pearls when we are thinking about and working actually in a resource or critical access hospital, resource limited or critical access hospital, an ED where we need to get that patient out and just a few things to consider 
with respect to the transport and making conditions as safe as possible while that patient's en route to, let's say, the tertiary center. Can't thank you enough for joining us here. Can't wait to have you back to talk about maybe some other critical conditions that your MSTAT team is resuscitating. Well, thank you very much for having me. And I would be more than happy and overjoyed to come back and talk some more. Sounds great. Well, once again, this is Mike Winters for CCPEM and the University of Maryland School of Medicine in Baltimore. Looking forward to chatting with you on our next podcast. Bye for now.